Welcome to the Modern Classrooms Project Podcast with Kareem Farah, Kate Gaskell, and me, Zach Diamond. Each week, we bring you discussions with educators on how they use blended, self-paced, and mastery-based learning to better serve their students. We believe teachers learn best from each other, so this is our way of lifting up the voices of leaders and innovators in our community. This is the Modern Classrooms Project Podcast. Hello and welcome to episode number 40 of the Modern Classrooms Project podcast. My name is Kareem Farah. I'm the co-founder and CEO of the Modern Classrooms Project. I'm joined by two wonderful educators today and guests. I'm super, super excited about this episode. Today's episode is all about lessons learned from year one, especially as the year closes out. We have two wonderful educators who learned our model for the first time this past year and implemented it for the first time this past year. So we are joined today by Amanda Arbuncle and Noah Bagelmacher, both fantastic implementers in totally different environments. Um, and that's what the focus of today's episode is going to be on. So without further ado, I want to dig in and I want to start by hearing about both of y'all's backgrounds. So Amanda, why don't you go ahead and start? Can you just share a little bit about yourself and your experience in education up to this point? Sure. Well, thanks for having me on. Um, So my husband and I have three kids. We have a ninth grader, a sixth grader, and a second grader. And my husband's also my principal, which makes conversations at home super exciting. (laughs) Um, We, as a family, love sports and we love to camp. I've been teaching for 17 years in my hometown of Concord. Both my husband and I are from here. And then most of that 17 years has been in second grade, but I've also taught kindergarten and fourth and fifth grade a little bit here and there. So that's a little about me. Fantastic. And for folks who don't know this, um, we have trained a number of educators out in Concord Community Schools. Uh, The district in general is just doing a beautiful job with our model. And Amanda's an absolute standout. One of our mentors um, absolutely crushes it. Super excited to hear about your implementation, especially at the elementary level. Noah, can you uh, share a little bit about yourself and your experience in education? Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for having me on the podcast. Um, So I started my career in teaching eight years ago. Um, Oddly enough, I was in the middle of grad school studying creative writing and didn't really know exactly what I was doing with my life besides being in grad school. Uh, So I moved to Israel for a year and volunteered and taught in middle school out in Israel. Uh, And then when I came back home in New York City, uh, I worked at a private school that specialized in one-to-one education for two and a half years. Uh, And then I found my way to the Department of Education through the New York City Teaching Fellows. And for the past uh, five years, I've been a special education teacher, and I'm currently teaching at the Clinton School in Manhattan, where I am a special education teacher in a 10th grade English class and a 12th grade international baccalaureate language and literature class. Fantastic. And again, Part of the reason that these two guests are on today is not only they're brilliant implementers, but I think they bring very different perspectives. Just to this podcast, we have a special education teacher at the high school level uh, in New York City, and then we have a elementary educator out in Michigan. So I think it's going to be a super interesting discussion. And, and hopefully the goal today is really as so many educators have learned our model over the course of last year letting people know what it's like to dive in to experience implementation to achieve success and also run into challenges. So that's the focus of today. So we're going to start just by kind of learning a little bit more about how you actually came in contact with the model, like how you actually learned the model. So Noah, why don't you go ahead and share a little bit about sort of what connected you with the Modern Classrooms Project? Yeah, I'd love to. 
Um, so my principal had found out about the Modern Classrooms Project, uh, I think at the conclusion of last school year or sometime over the summer. And so going into the school year, obviously this past school year, we had a ton of unknowns, a lot of expected problems and issues that we were going to have to work around. Um, and he was really captivated by the model as a way to um, increase student engagement. And we were look- and he was looking for a cohort of teachers who wanted to pilot it and try it out. Uh, and as soon as I was reading up on it, I was immediately really drawn to it. Um, anything that gives students more empowerment, more engagement, and really like is more student focused, I think specifically as a special education teacher, those are kinds of things that I'm looking for anyway. Um, so as soon as I heard about the program, I immediately was hook, line, and sinker, was totally into it. And so trained, I guess, from September to about December was when I was training and working on my first unit, um, which I implemented later in the school year. Fantastic. And yeah, the Clinton School was a, a one of our first partnerships last year. You all went through the virtual mentorship program and Noah probably moved faster than I think almost any teacher I'd ever seen. You had absolutely crushed that mentorship program. And we were super, super excited to hear about your experience because we knew just how high the quality of work you were submitting. So we are now excited to know that you're implementing and, and learning about what the strengths are and the ways to iterate. So very exciting. Amanda, do you want to share a little bit about how you came in contact with the model? Yeah. So... I think COVID obviously pushed our hand a little bit, Um, but even prior to COVID happening, I knew that like something fundamentally needed to change in teaching, not just with my students in my classroom, but with my own children as well and kind of seeing where they were struggling. And so I just, I just always liked learning. And so I was researching like backwards design and edge of protocols and visual thinking strategies and hyperdocs. And I had so many things in my head and I was trying to put it all together and figure it out. And my superintendent called and she's like, Hey, I I saw this modern classroom thing. I think you'd really like it. There's a free course. You want to give it a try? So I said, sure. And it was amazing because I was able, it was a place for me to put all of that, all of that in one hub, in one model and um, and I just love that I can use a lot of the good practices that I've been researching and apply them using the modern classroom model. So I did the free course over the summer, and then our district joined the mentorship program in the fall. And so some of us went through that in the fall, and I just kind of took off from there. Amazing. And Amanda, you actually kind of foreshadowed some of the, the next question, which is like, what was actually the theory of change? Like, why are you seeking to reinvent? Can you actually dig in a little bit more there? Like, what about teaching and learning prior to learning the model were you frustrated with? And, and I'm so intrigued to hear this, particularly as an elementary educator with as much experience as you had. I think one of the coolest things about teachers is that you all are continuous learners. I was too. It's like one of my favorite things about the profession um, is that you just can't perfect it. Like it's literally impossible. And every time I get on calls like this and do podcasts like this, I think about all the things I wish I could have changed in my own classroom had I gone back. So can you talk a little bit more about what it was at the elementary second grade level for you that you were really seeking to change? Yeah. So more than anything, when I look at my second graders, like it's not just, I don't want them to be just successful for second grade. I want them to be successful humans 
And I want them to be able to problem solve and think critically and be empathetic. And I want them to be lifelong learners. But the current system or the previous system that we had really didn't inspire that. Um, You know, in elementary, we don't lecture a ton. We're not standing up in front of the kids a lot. But still, I just felt like I was falling short in getting them to want to continue to learn and to to when things got hard to dive in and to figure it out. And for a while, I kind of wondered, is it because they are so young? And I really don't think it is. I think we need to foster an environment where kids are able to be independent and where they're able to kind of problem solve and struggle through it and know that that's okay. So I really, I really wanted change for that because I want to help grow and successful people and not just in my classroom, but out of it. And I think the modern classroom allows me to nurture those skills in each of my students, no matter where they are, whether they're a struggling learner or, you know, they're a high flyer. I feel like it gives me the ability to raise each of them up to be their best person. Well, I mean, and just in hearing the way you describe your class, I am so excited because I know our team at some point next year will be making it out to Concord, and I'm so pumped to see your class in action, largely because I actually got to see some second grade classrooms just a week ago. It was my first time back in classrooms out in Bellwood, um, and it was also elementary implementation. And I love to hear you say that one of the reasons you wanted to implement the model is to really build those like translatable skills, right? It's valuable to learn like how to count or multiply numbers, but it's also really valuable to understand how to control your own learning in an effective way. And my least favorite critique I ever hear about the model is that students are not developmentally ready for it. It drives me absolutely nuts. I mean, maybe it's because I've gotten to see elementary implementation in action, but it just drives me insane because every time I hear an educator like yourself working with second grade students, I think you can attest just as much as anyone else, kids are absolutely developmentally ready. You just have to create the structures and systems to do so. So I think that's super, super inspiring to hear about implementation at the second grade level. And can you share a little bit about how you implement in the second grade level? So I think the main question almost every elementary implementer or someone interested in the model brings up is like, do you do it in a bunch of different subjects or do you focus on one? Yeah, that is such a good question. And to be honest with you, that's kind of where I struggled in the fall was I loved the model so much. I wanted to apply it to everything. Yep. Um, and I'm a go-getter. So I, I I was killing myself trying to make it work. And it's just not, it's not feasible for everything. We teach um, so many mini lessons throughout a day. Like our day is broken up into 15, 20, maybe 30 minute chunks. So we have just, my teaching partner does the math and I use it for the ELA. Um, but there's just some parts that we, that don't translate as well as we would like. Um, just because we need, you know, we have different needs for different areas that we teach. So making the videos all ahead of time for every mini lesson we do, um, wouldn't work as well. So we just really decided to hone in on what was the most important for us and kind of do it well and, instead of trying to do all the things. Yep. Makes perfect sense. I love that you're doing implementation both at math and ELA. And one of the things we preach to everyone, customization, use it when it works. And usually folks find out that it works in most kind of structures or units, but certainly some where don't force it. And I love to hear that that's the way you're doing it. So fantastic. Noah, talk to me about your theory of change. I know that you mentioned briefly there that 
one of the things that's super, super important to you, especially as a special education teacher, is building student agency. Can you talk a little bit more about sort of why you were drawn to the model, especially when you went through kind of our initial set of materials? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So first of all, you know, you definitely hit the nail on the head of teachers being lifelong learners. I think part of what drew me to it at first was I, at the end of last school year, just felt really beaten down. You know, it was a grind to get through when we were in quarantine and just seeing everything drastically change. So for my own learning, it was really interesting to, to be in a situation where I wanted to have new ways to approach education just to sort of like put some more wind in my own sails. Um, And in terms of student agency, you know, I've seen in my history of being a special education teacher at various places where I've taught seeing that there's nothing worse to see. And and any teacher has seen this. This is not, uh, this is definitely not particular to a special education teacher. It's really hard to work with students when they feel like what's going on in the classroom is somehow not for them. And that can mean either if they feel like it's outside of their wheelhouse intellectually, if they are behind, if they're not engaging in any kind of way, if the tasks that we're asking them to do, um, it's really deflating as a teacher. And I can only imagine how deflating that has to be for a student once they feel like whatever's going on is not geared for them. So I'm always have been like striving to find ways of how to build that up in students and let them be successful and increase their level of ownership of what's going on. So what I really was uh, drawn to in the model was the idea that it really is like a decentralized classroom. Like the teacher is much more facilitator and the students get to learn within their wheelhouse of how they are mastering concepts and feeling comfortable and moving at their own pace, um, which I just was so awestruck by. Uh, And definitely, you know, I think seeing sometimes in in a co-taught classroom, you know, there there can be occasionally uh, stigmas of like students who are quote unquote behind um, and what that does to them and how that impacts their learning experience. So anything to move away from that and have it be more student focused, I just completely love. Yeah. You know, it's so interesting. You bring up like what I think is one of the most important concepts that we can't continue to ignore in education, which is what happens when we literally destroy a kid's belief in their own capacity to learn because we've structured the learning environment to basically create a structure where they're continuously failing, right? Like every single day they come in and they're like, I don't belong here because either the content is disconnected to what I care about or I actually don't feel like I have the time, space, or support to be able to master the skill or both. And it is not a surprise, particularly given the content area and grade level you teach, that you see this at scale, right? And it's something we need to address immediately. And I saw this so often because as a math teacher, I mean, everyone knows how often kids say, I hate math or I'm bad at math. It's just like constant. So, you know, I think that's one of the most important visions we've created at the organization is to to create a world where kids can actually feel successful because we know motivation is so deeply connected at times to folks' capacity to feel like they can actually succeed at something. So I think that's super, super inspiring and I'm glad I brought you to the model. Let's talk a little bit about when you implemented, you know, both of you, it sounds like learn the model. Amanda, you learned it over the summer, but then went through the virtual mentorship program. And then Noah, you sounds like 
learn the model basically first semester and then start implementing. So can you all talk about, and we can start this time with you, Noah, like what was literal implementation like? So talk us through, like I create the unit and then I launched it and what was what were the first few units like? And be as specific as possible because I think folks will really like to understand what it's actually like to be in the shoes of a first-year implementer. Yeah, absolutely. So I, like you were saying, I was training with a virtual mentorship program in the fall. Um, and so the unit that I designed and launched with it, which was going to launch, we launched it in early to mid-January, um, which was our unit on the Odyssey and uh, any, and it was a, a unit that was sort of had a lot of, uh, it had its own history in the building at the Clinton School. It was like, oh, in 12th grade, you're going to read the Odyssey. And kids dreaded it. They knew that it was coming. So it was something that I really wanted to tackle in terms of like, if we're talking about making education more accessible and letting kids be have more agency and feel successful, that definitely was a unit that I had in mind that we wanted to do and, and make that more in their wheelhouse where students could work with it. So we launched it in, in mid January and we kind of just jumped right into it. It was totally brand new for the students. Um, so what we did was we did first like a modern classroom style lesson just to introduce them to the framework um, and really ease them into how it was going to work. We ended up doing over the course of like designing the unit and working with my mentor and talking with my co-teacher, my principal and stakeholders and figuring out how this was going to work best in a, in a virtual space. Cause we were still remote at that point. Um, what we had come to the conclusion was that it was going to work best of sort of taking some of the elements of the modern classroom framework and turning it into a flipped classroom. We felt that if the students weren't in the building yet to try to do an entirely self-paced blended environment just wasn't going to to work out. Um, But we kind of just jumped right into it and solicited a lot of student feedback along the way. Like we were really upfront with them uh, in terms of what we were doing and what we were adjusting and why. Uh, And what we found was that while it definitely was a little bit of a lift for students to wrap their brains around learning differently than what they had been used to for essentially their entire school career and definitely how things were working uh, over the course of a remote school year. Um, They bought into it. And I think they definitely bought into the idea that we were asking them to let us know what blind spots we were missing, where we were asking too much, where we weren't giving them enough of what they needed. So I think what I would look for uh, and the mentees that I work with, what I've told them is always look for feedback be honest with your students about what you're doing and why and hear from them when it's not working. And also, you know, there are so many different components of the framework that work really well. And as a whole thing, it works fantastically. But if you are in a situation where maybe some components are more to the needs of your classroom than others, if you can't truly implement everything, do what you can and ease your students into it. And as you can increase how you are using the framework in your classroom, that's okay. I, I love that. It's so true. I mean, I don't know how many times I say this a week, but I will never stop saying it. Customize, 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 make it your own. That is the heart and soul of what we believe in at the Modern Classroom Project. It's also why I think a lot of ed innovations and just like ed things fail, right? Because like 
your environment's very different from Amanda's, which is very different from mine and very different from all the other teachers we work with. So if we try to overstandardize, it's just not going to work. Can you provide a tiny bit more clarity on like literal day one? Did you expect explain the model at the front of the room did you build an instructional video on the model like what was day one for those kids literal day one since we were still remote at that point we jumped right into they had an ed puzzle we had created a student tracker um, and they knew where to find it on classroom and it was already pre-populated i think with our first couple of lessons and all of our links so we had them jump right into an ed puzzle and the ed puzzle was on how the framework would work, how we were using these elements to create a flipped classroom, what work they were expected to complete before a lesson, what was going to be going on after a lesson, how we were going to be handling our mastery checks. So we really put them in like experiential learning. Like we wanted to see like if you are grasping how we're using the framework, like you're immediately doing it, whether you thought about it or not. Love it. I remember it was might have been my third year in implementation, but maybe my second year was when I actually realized that it doesn't make sense for me to not explain the model through the model. Like I would, and it's probably sounds silly coming from me, um, but I used to explain the model at the front of the room in traditional format. So I'd be like, here's how this is going to work. It would be like a PowerPoint at the front of the room. I would talk at them for 20 minutes and I was like, why am I doing that? Like that is the antithesis of the whole point of the model. So I'm so glad to hear that you actually launch the model through the model, which I think is a really good practice that helps kids in a low stakes way learn how this is going to work. So sounds fantastic. Amanda, talk to me about your launch. When did you do it? How did you do it? It sounds like you tried to do it in literally everything, which sounds impossible. <laughs> so talk us through that. Okay. So I started, like I said, in, in the summer and um, I have a second grader and my youngest daughter is a second grader. So um, my actual first rollout with it was with her which was very humbling because she like, it was very pretty. It looked great, but she, the cognitive load for her was spent on navigating it. Even, even though I had kind of broken it up into pieces and tried to break it down a little bit, I didn't break it down enough. So that was super helpful for me because I got to practice with her. And then I tried the model again. Like, I'm like, okay, let's make this different. That's, that's too much. Even though I thought it was going to be okay, um, I need to remember to go slow, to go fast. So pri prior to school starting, my teaching partner and I sat down and we looked at, like, what is it, what do we want this to look like for our kids so that their cognitive load is spent on the content, not on mastering how to navigate everything. Um, and we're hybrid. So we also had to think, okay, what is this going to look like for our online kids? And what is it going to look like for our face-to-face -face kids? And how can we make that look the same so we're not doing two different things for two different groups of kids? Um, so my teaching partner and I really took a lot of time looking at that. And then we gave it to other staff members to look at and get their feedback on. Um, and so the very first week, we just, it was like, our game board only had three pieces. We didn't even add up the must-dos yet. And it was just the video, which wasn't about anything educational at that point. It was just, uh, I think we did like a, um, a mindset video. And then um, they did a practice activity with that. And then we did a mastery check. So we just started really small with those three things. Um, we didn't introduce must-dos, should-dos, and we call them could-dos or aspire-to-dos. We didn't introduce those right away. And there were only three things. 
And for each day, because I'm a second grade teacher, um, the kids have a game board for each day rather than an entire unit. And I really think just going slow over everything and not having content in it at first was super helpful. But I think the most, the thing that we did was that, that was the smartest was that we allowed for feedback from other people before we even pushed it out to our kiddos um, because we started it that first week of school. So my daughter's feedback was incredibly helpful. And the feedback I got from other teachers on what they thought about it was also very incredible. And we were able to have some conversations around what we could do to improve it. And then to be honest, I'm still revamping it and looking it over and deciding what I want to change and how I want to make it better. And I think next year I'll do the same thing. I'll have a new group of students with new needs. And that's one of the things I love about the model is it's just that it's a model. It's not a, you have to do it this way every single time. It gives a lot of autonomy to teachers in addition to giving the autonomy to the students. I love it. I love it. And if you wouldn't be a modern classroom mentor, implementer, if you weren't constantly iterating and revamping, which I also think is super awesome. You know, I heard two themes, by the way, that are similar across both of your launches, even though you teach wildly different grade levels, content areas and all that good stuff. You both started slow with low stakes content, right? First lesson is not something where you're combining the pressure of mastering some sort of rigorous academic skill with the learning a new brand new like approach to internalizing information. I just think it's so important for listeners to internalize and hear that both of you may have, it sounds like Amanda, you may have launched right at the beginning of the school year, no in the middle, but you know, I just strongly encourage folks when you launch the model, start with content that doesn't feel like there's a lot of pressure on students because you can't underestimate how often kids when they access new information just feel like if I'm not on pace or I'm not doing it right, like something's wrong and start to panic and you just don't want kids to feel that way. The second thing is feedback. Both of you have mentioned that you are seeking feedback constantly from your students, maybe parents, maybe other colleagues, maybe your own child. Um, I think that's so powerful because ultimately kids give really good feedback. It's really authentic. It's honest. It's useful. And when it's not, you can tell right? Like it's, it's pretty easy, easy to tell when a student's kind of throwing something at you that maybe isn't kind of honest or isn't, isn't really like thoughtful or with the intention of supporting you in, in creating tools, structures, and systems that are valuable for them. So both of you doing that, it, it speaks to both your, your all's capacity to implement and obviously mentor. So I think that's fantastic. So it's awesome to hear about those experiences. I want to transition now into like dissecting a little bit about what the student experience was like and the actual feedback you all are receiving. I mean, it's quite clear that you all were kind of taking a temperature check on where your students were at throughout this journey. Uh, Let's start with you, Amanda. What initially did students really like about the model? Like what were the things that like did not require all that much buy-in? Like kids just immediately connected with the value of certain elements of it. What were those elements? You know, I I feel kind of fortunate because at second grade, I feel like the kids are still, you know, Mrs. Arbuckle is going to ask us to do this and it's going to be fun. And in general, they just love everything as long as we're positive and happy about it. So I don't think the kids really even thought, oh, this is something brand new or I should be weary of this. I think they were ready to just um, like jump right in. And then once we got going, like I said, we went really slow to begin with. We didn't add the guided notes at first. We 
um, didn't like we've got our aspire to do's on there and we didn't add that at first. So I think that gradual release of responsibility for the kids made them confident so that when they did come to a problem in their modern classroom, whether it was reading or math, they were more capable and ready to, to solve it. Um, and then once we got going and the steam kept going, you know, we added the guided notes. And to be honest, I was really nervous about that at first with second graders because I thought that's big, right? Like that's what high schoolers do. And they take notes on their stuff. Is it, can second graders do this? And I find myself asking that question a lot. And I think if I have to ask that question and I don't give them an opportunity to show me, they're going to knock my socks off. And of course they did with the guided notes. That was like a game changer for us in here. And the fact that they don't just take the guided notes, but now as they're going, they're using their guided notes. It just shows that you can't underestimate the power of learning in, in kids. And that was really awesome. So I think as we got going, then they loved the independence of it. They loved the ownership. I've got student teachers in my classroom and, you know, they love that opportunity to lead the class and to kind of help their friends out. I have second graders who every night, because they can access the modern classroom from home, they're doing work on their own in the evenings so that when they come to school, they can help their friends and really dig down and do the aspire to do's um, while they're in here and really push their learning. And to me, like, that's what it's about. That's what I was saying when earlier, what I really want is to raise successful humans. And I think the skills and strategies they've learned throughout this process from the beginning going slow to now full momentum is like, going to make them incredibly successful um, in their educational career. I think it's fabulous. It's my favorite part about the model because and it's part of the reason why I think it's really hard to go back to traditional practices is because once you see what happens when you give kids the structure and freedom to be in the driver's seat, you just don't want to strip that away from them. Like, it's just like, it stings, right? When you see a kid who's able to go home and, you know, watch some instructional videos or get ahead and then ask questions, or when you see a kid take control of their own learning and create great gratitude notes and then really be in the driver's seat of how they tackle one skill or collaborate with each other, you just don't want to strip them that experience again. So uh, that was actually a similar experience for me. The most exciting part of it was just like seeing what happens when I actually released control. Like the benefits were immediate um, and exciting, and even that it, it made up for the challenges. So I think that's super inspiring. Noah, can you share a little bit about what the yeah what initial elements for you just like worked just clicked for kids, and we're just not requiring much explanation or buy-in. Yeah, sure. It's so it's really interesting to like list it in because a lot of what Amanda was saying with her students, in some ways, really similar to the experiences that I had with my students. Um, the thing that they really jumped on in the beginning was that level of independence that once we laid out for them, you know, the, the must do's, the should do's and the aspire to do is that they had flexibility of how they could work through the unit and work through the curriculum. And definitely with the way that remote learning was working uh, at that point of the school year at my school, the fact that the students had more flexibility in terms of what they were working on and when they seemed to really gravitate towards that of being able to work a little bit more on their terms and um, just have a little bit more freedom and to, to run their school schedule. Uh, they also seem to really appreciate the videos themselves. The Ed Puzzle videos were like in a traditional classroom, you know, if you miss the note, 
right? If you're, if you're missing what's going on when the teacher is delivering content, you don't get the note or you don't get it from your friend, that can be really frustrating. So they really appreciated that if there was some concept that maybe after we had a class session or in their reading, um, that something was a little bit fuzzy, it was there for them to go back for it. That resource was up and it was always accessible for them if they ever needed it. Uh, the last thing that they really appreciated, which always came back really strong on the feedback, was the tracker, the student tracker that we gave them and used as basically our curriculum map for that unit. Um, you know, during the course of the school year, um, they were getting bombarded with so many emails of like things being posted on classrooms for all their different classes throughout the school year. You know, different classrooms might be set up differently of where you're looking for stuff on a day to day basis. And we were really, we set this expectation for ourselves as educators from the beginning that this student tracker is going to be your one-stop shopping for the class. All the links that you're going to need are always going to be there and they'll always be live when you when you need them to be. And they seem to really appreciate that, that they could see that roadmap and they knew where to go to access that roadmap whenever they needed to get any work done for our class. You know, it's super interesting because... I I hear a similar thread, which is that particularly with your secondary students, they have a deep appreciation for the instructional video not disappearing. I think this is actually kind of interesting because I think elementary kids just don't worry about that as much. But for the high school kids, particularly high school kids that consistently run into attendance challenges or like just aren't able to pay attention to the lecture, that like the fact that the video isn't gone is so powerful. It's one of the most intuitive initial benefits is like, wait a minute, like I can just go back to that thing and rewatch it. And I love to hear that folks find that powerful. I also think you mentioned something really interesting about the tracker. The idea that kids actually have some clarity around where they're going is really important. A lot of times we put kids in a position where they just kind of like move forward aimlessly, you know, and I remember kind of having observers walk into my class and say like, what are you learning today? And like kind of listening in and the kids were just like, I don't know, whatever lesson Mr. Fair is teaching today. And you really kind of like erode at that issue with our model because when someone asks what you're doing, you're able to align it to this kind of roadmap, this tracker. There's like direction around why and where you're going around learning that I think is powerful and very novel with our model that I think is exciting, which is why it sounds like some of your high school students really enjoyed that structure, especially in like a hybrid remote environment where everything kind of feels great. So I think it's fascinating. Can um, we now talk a little bit about what folks struggle with? Like what were the biggest initial challenges no, why don't we start with you? Like, where did folks really struggle when you were getting feedback? What were the things that they either wanted to see change or the things that they just needed time to internalize and understand how to navigate? Yeah, the things that we got, we heard back on initial feedback from students that we needed to work with and adjust was they felt that due to, you know, a lot of the the, the direct instruction happening through the ed puzzles and the way that we were facilitating our live sessions when we met with students that felt like they weren't getting enough time to engage with the text directly, either with their teachers or with each other. They felt like it was a lot of work. They felt like they were getting assigned more work than they were previously in a more conventional educational framework and certainly compared to what they were getting earlier in the school year. 
Um, those were the two things that really stood out to us of how they engaged with the text and how they were engaging with the work as a whole. Um, and so what we did was we, we uh, modified how we used our live class time um, so that when we built in more class discussion around the text and we could sometimes split up depending on how students, where they were at in the text and depending on how they were doing with the ed puzzles and how they were engaging with the text. So we occasionally could split up into different groups to have a little bit of differentiation and a digital space. And in terms of the workload, um, but we adjusted how often we had the students write because it was that was something that had been a blind spot for us that we were doing the mastery checks. The students were doing really well with those and they were moving, they were progressing the way that we wanted them to. But at first we sort of lost sight of like, we still want them to be writing while they're reading. And it's important that they're getting feedback from us on what they're writing because if they're not getting feedback, it's going to feel sort of aimless for them. So we adjusted how often we were making them write and what kind of writing tasks we were looking for in order to adjust to what they were telling us. Super interesting. And one of the things I would encourage listeners to know is just because kids are struggling with a certain element of the model doesn't mean that's actually problematic. In fact, I think that's really exciting because then you get to show them how flexible the model is. It's actually an opportunity to be like, oh, you all want a little bit more of this? Well, good thing I can actually do that. And in some cases, you won't because you actually think it's not a great idea. Um, But I think that's really, really powerful. The other piece that I'm hearing, which I think is interesting from you, Noah, and correct me if I'm wrong, was there a desire a little bit to collaborate more or was it specifically when, cause when you say engage with the text, was that that they just wanted to like literally have more time to invest in literally reading the text or was it a desire for a little bit more collaboration? Definitely more for collaboration. Like they, you know, thinking about, and this could also be due to the fact that our students were still remote at this time. You know, they were used to being in a learning environment where, you know, you would come into class, you've read that portion from the odyssey or whatever text you're doing you'll have your do now assignment and there's usually some discussion either previewing what you're about to read or reviewing what you already read or some combination of the two um and that the way that we had initially launched the model in our class we that we hadn't really thought of how to make space for that and students really wanted that they wanted to be able to collaborate they wanted to be able to discuss with each other they wanted to be able to discuss with us more and that was sort of across the board for like our our students who maybe were um, struggling a little bit with the text itself, those sort of like comprehension things to make sure that they fundamentally understood what was happening in, in the story. Um, and then, you know, students across the board wanting to engage with it deeper, getting into those more uh, analytical kind of discussions that we were having to frame how we were reading it. Super interesting. Super, super interesting. I love that. Amanda. Talk to me about the challenges. What did those second graders tell you you needed to fix ASAP when you launched the thing? Yeah. So I'll be honest, my videos were not great to begin with. <laughs> like I was trying so hard, but they were just weren't translating to excite the seven and eight-year-olds. So um, I made just a small change and I decided, you know what, that, let me smash my videos with some at the beginning. I'll put some intro music and some graphics and then the exit's going to be an outro music and some graphics too, just like 
10 extra seconds. It takes me a few minutes to add my um, videos inside those. And that seems so silly, but the kiddos, you'll hear them be bopping and dancing around to the music and they really like that. And I just think that that soft start into the video helped them a lot. Um, So once we got there, I think the next struggle that the kids really had was teaching second graders. And I could imagine, Noah, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I can imagine that high schools would struggle with this too. But teaching them how to learn from the video, like with the lens of learning instead of being a consumer. I think sometimes, you know, our kids sit in front of video games and TVs and they're not sure how to learn from it. So um, we did a lot of pre-teaching on, okay, so in the video, we ask you to pause the video so they can work in their guided notes for a little bit to do some thinking before we um, share our thoughts with them. So I think that that struggle was that they just didn't know how to learn from a video. So it did take some intentionality on our part to make sure they knew how to learn from the video and not just consume. So I would say that would be be the biggest um, roadblock we had at first. That's super interesting. That consumption problem is fascinating. It's actually why like we deeply believe in the importance of guided notes just to start because we saw the damage of this, right? Like if you just like throw a video up or give a kid a video to watch, like, holy moly, you have no idea what's going to happen next. Like you'll have kids staring out the window. You'll have kids just like literally putting the video at like 2x speed with a YouTube video in the background that they're watching. Um, It's amazing. I just think that there's so many screens in 2021 um, that it's very easy for a kid to like very passively watch a video and almost not watch it at all. So I think creating structure around that and internalizing what it means to be an engaged viewer is really powerful. I think guided notes are an interesting way to do it. I've also seen some teachers use really powerful questioning tools, either through Edpuzzle, but also through like engaging in the room. Kate Gaskill, who's often on the podcast once when I watched her classroom, she started to see that kids were either not actually listening to the audio or not internalizing the information in the video. So she actually had prompts in the video that required the kids to do something physical in the classroom. And it was both an accountability tool to be like, you didn't watch the video and uh, a way to make the video watching experience more interesting. So, you know, she'd have do like a four corners thing in her class. So at two minutes in the video, she'd say something like, go grab a blue sticky note and put it on the Southwest corner of the room and write something connected to X concept. So, you know, kids would be just like organically standing up and doing that. Um, and it would require kids to be deeply engaged and create an interesting accountability structure. So I love to hear that that's like something that you noticed and then we're, we're able to change, uh, which I think is cool. I also, I agree with her, like having those times to move around because I think that was a misconception for me at first. I didn't want my kiddos to be in front of the computer all the time. And so being cognizant of that balance, like you're going to watch a video and do an activity, but then that activity could be with a friend. So that collaboration piece has been huge for my kids too. Just making sure that there's a good balance of computer work, seat work, group work, all of that. And I think the modern classroom helps that. I love it. That's fabulous. It's amazing. By the way, we're like 40 minutes into this and it feels like we've been talking for 10 minutes. So we are going to get close to closing out. Um, I have a couple more questions I want to make sure to hit before we do close this thing out. Uh, The first is, I mean, you're both mentors and you're both fabulous mentors, by the way. Um, 
it's pretty amazing to see uh, the support that you're giving to other educators. Um, it's really inspiring. I want you all to just share if there's one thing, one thing at all that you could tell a teacher who's about to start learning the model. What is the one thing you would tell them? Noah, you go first. I think just the idea of being open to trying new things, right? Like it is, you're naturally shaking up so many preconceived notions that you have as an educator of what education is supposed to look like and sort of like, and accept that, right? Like I think it is definitely one of those leap kind of moments. Like if you, and sort of like we talked about before, the model is flexible in that you can implement the different parts that you want uh, and customize to base what you need in your, in your classroom. But if you know, you're doing it because you want to try something really new and you're doing it because you want to do something that's going to empower your students uh, more in the classroom. So I think really embracing that. And then I think, you know, we've a word that's come up a lot in the, the conversation we've been having is the idea of feedback. Like I was really open with my students and being clear with them why we were doing this even though my principal uh, had come to me with the opportunity with this framework, when we were ready to launch it, my co-teacher and I both spoke with him to be really clear of like what our vision was and why we were doing it that way. So I think just, you know, being okay with that risk for yourself and then just really open communication with all stakeholders of like what you're doing, why you're doing it, how it empowers students and just go with it and have fun with it. You know, I had a lot of fun making the videos. I thought that was going to be really hard, but fell into it. Um, so have fun with it. I think it's a big part too. Fantastic. Fantastic. Amanda, what's the one thing you would say to a teacher who's about to start doing this? Yeah. So I would say to listen, um, listen to the conversations of, that your students are having before you ask them to quiet down. Sometimes when I just stop and listen, their conversations that these seven and eight-year-olds are having are so powerful that if I intervene, I'm going to ruin it. So I would just say to listen to their conversations, to like Noah was saying, listen to their struggles, the feedback they're giving you because it's going to help you refine your, your practice. I would also say listen for classroom leaders and try to rise them up. Because that has been a key to this being so successful in my classroom is finding those kiddos who innately want to be a leader and like that status of that and just raising them up in a way that they can help other students without overhelping. Um, and then I would also say listen for the students that aren't asking questions. Um, there might be something that they're afraid to speak about that they're confused with. And so my my main goal would be just to tell teachers to listen. It's so interesting that you say that because one of the things I love about the model is that you can listen. Like you actually have the time to listen. One of the toughest things about teaching traditionally is you just don't have the time to do that. Most of the time you're like delivering a, a lesson or you're overwhelmed by facilitating some sort of experience. This model gives you the space to literally listen. And you learn so much when you just listen to the kids and get a vibe and a feel for where kids are at. So I think it's fantastic advice. The last question I have for you, all, Amanda, we'll start with you. What are you most excited about for year two? You've done it for a year. You're about to hit the summer. Like, what are you most excited about from the implementation perspective for next year? I'm honestly the most excited for a new group of students to learn this way. I love the fact that I can inspire change 
in their learning in just one year of second grade. And I love the ownership it gives them. And I'm excited for a new group of second graders to discover that as well. I'm also excited for me as the educator to keep refining my practice. And I think that if I if I feel like I have it all figured out, I need to stop teaching because I'm far away from that. And every year is a, at the end of the year, you know, I have reflection and I think about what I want to do better. And I'll definitely spend a lot of time this summer doing that. Um, so yeah, I'm just excited for a new group of kiddos to to have the opportunity to use this model. I absolutely love it. I love it. Noah, what are you most excited about as you think about year two? So thinking about year two, well, if any of my current 11th grade students, I guess they're not my students, but the current 11th graders at Clinton who are going to be the 12th graders next year, if they listen to this, this is a spoiler alert for them. Um, we're not going to teach the Odyssey next year. So that the unit that we built is going to be retired for now. I don't know if it's forever. It was something that the students had advocated for. They felt that it was no longer an adequate text to teach um, the different ideas that we were looking at it. So it was purely about content, not about the framework. The students overwhelmingly really enjoyed the framework. Um, so when my co-teacher and I decided to, to shelve it, at first it was a little bit of a punch to the gut of like, worked really hard to to adapt this unit and have it work as a modern classroom unit. But then I became really excited about it because then that means the unit that we're going to build next year that's going to take its place then gets to be built from scratch with this framework in mind, um, which I think breeds its own like really fascinating new opportunities uh, as an educator. Cause it's one thing to say like, okay, we have these lessons, we have these ideas, we know where they're going and how do we augment it to fit within this framework? I think it's a totally other ball game when you're saying I have this framework and I know that it works and I know the students are into it. And if I'm building something entirely new, how do I get to build something with it? So, you know, kind of bringing it all full circle of like the idea of like educators as like lifelong learners, I'm really excited about that, um, to build something brand new with this new way of education in mind and thinking about what that's going to look like. I'm also very excited to see what it's going to look like in person since this year we implemented it and ran it entirely remotely. You know, and there's so many things that my co-teacher and I would be like, oh, this is really cool, but we can't really do it remotely but this will be a really great idea that we can do, you know, whether it be for specific lessons or sort of the framework as a whole, that we're like, this will work really well when we're back in the classroom. So there are obviously lots of things that we're excited about being back in the classroom for next year. Um, but seeing what the model is going to look like in person, I'm very, very excited for that. So awesome. So awesome. Well, this has been a joy. Noah and Amanda. I can attest, by the way, to everyone listening. These are two fantastic implementers and fantastic mentors. It's been a joy to hear about your first year of implementation. I learned a ton. I know our listeners did as well. So I just want to thank you both for joining. Thank you, Amanda. Thank you, Noah. Thanks for having me. Thank you. All right, folks. Um, well, as always, you can access our work at learn.modernclassrooms.org if you want to check out our free course. If you want to go to our website, www.modernclassrooms.org. Our Summer Institute is full. Folks like Noah and Amanda are going to be mentoring hundreds and thousands, not hundreds of thousands, but hundreds and or thousands of educators. We have about 1,300 educators joining us this summer. Um, so folks are going to be implementing a lot next year, and we're super, super excited about it. Uh, thank you all for listening. We'll be back at it next week. Bye, everyone. 
Thank you so much for listening. You can find links to topics and tools we discussed in our show notes for this episode. And remember, you can learn more about our work at www.modernclassrooms.org and you can learn the essentials of our model through our free course at learn.modernclassrooms.org. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Modern Class Proj, that's P-R-O-J. We are so appreciative of all you do for students in schools. Have a great week, and we'll be back next Sunday with another episode of the Modern Classrooms Project podcast. Podcast.